Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subasati. And hello, Governor. Hello. <laughs> we are back for an episode that um, I've certainly wanted to do for a very long time. Uh-huh. And we kind of talked about it on and off. And then I was just like, you know what, Andrea? Let's just do it. It's time. We did our true crime episode, and I think we kind of dipped our toes in here a little bit. And so maybe just at the onset, let's just get out that this isn't going to be a true crime style episode. There are tons of true crime podcasts out there. We are not going to theorize who done it, who it was. That's a different kind of podcast. Jack the Ripper, though, for me, and certainly in the horror context, speaks to so, so much more than that. Jack the Ripper is such a huge figure in West. Western history in particular. It is a case that has boggled the minds of many, consumed many. People have made careers off of it. It's a really huge idea and a huge notion to tackle. So we picked two really different films from two completely different eras mm-hmm. uh, and look at this case in very different ways to try to start unpacking this case a little bit more. And the more I certainly dug into this case, and, and I was when I was younger, probably like a preteen into my teens, I was really fascinated by the case of Jack the Ripper. And I think in large part, it was because he was never caught. Right. Um, and it was this creepy mystery, and it happened. And um, my dad's British, so I, I kind of had all these links back to it. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But now coming to it as um, an almost 36-year-old woman, I have some different perspectives, um, not only the case, but also the films we're going to talk about today. Yes. Yeah, the films have aged within a certain context. Yeah. To that's, put it, that's a very nice way to put it, it particularly yeah. for one of them. Yeah, but ripperology is a thing, and that's a word that I kept coming across. You know, ripperology refers to all the theories as to who Jack was as well as any examination of the cultural phenomenon. And I hope we don't get too ripped, because last weekend, let me tell you, I have just started to recover (laughs) from our Conjuring 3 Patreon exclusive. Yeah, we did a commentary on the Conjuring 3, so if you'd like to hear that, head on over to Patreon. And um, I think at one point I just said, Andrea, I need more alcohol. It was one of those nights where it's just like, what have I got in the fridge that has any alcohol in it? And uh, we paid for that. I mean, those those shots of nail polish remover at the end were inspired. Well, my teeth are so nice and shiny. But yeah, I've been referring to that film now as The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Drink It. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get away from those right-wing Warrens and go back to London town in the 19th century. Now, we're going to kick this episode off with a bit of a grounding, a bit of a foundation in the Ripper case, because I think it's really good that we just all kind of have a common understanding. Um, And even when I went back and started putting together this history, there were parts of it I forgot, uh, parts of it I wasn't clear on before. So, And again, this is really a straightforward take on it. Um, There's tons more stuff out there. Like, there's so much 
media and nonfiction out there about this case and this figure, you could be at this forever. Decades of scholarship, decades of like, you know, there's there's actual academic scholarship and then there's just discourse and then there's these movies coming out every so often. It's a lot. Yeah. So Jack the Ripper is a figure that haunts our history. And he does so because there are so many points of culture that culminated in this case. There is a persisting interest in Jack the Ripper because, as I said before, it's an unsolved case. The brutality of the crimes themselves, Mm -hmm. especially against a backdrop of the Victorian era, Mm -hmm. the class system at play, the structure of London as a city, uh, industrialization was a huge part of it, globalization with rising anxieties um, and, you know, really overt racism and xenophobia and anti-Semitism, prejudice against sex workers, the rise of new journalism or tabloid journalism, and Truly, these crimes are just a really dark expression of human evil. Yeah. And when you read some of the case files of what actually happened to these women, it's truly chilling. Yes, these were very uh, nasty mutilations. And I think the implication that the killer had surgical knowledge is something that they really get into with From Hell. But that definitely points to the class differential, uh, which is something that, you know, it, it, it sets this particular cluster of murders apart in the great zeitgeist of true crime. And really, it's just a terrifying case when you think about it. Uh, but it's also a salient mystery, which is why I think so many like true crime people kind of get into it. And then you also have to keep in mind that this case was happening almost at like the epicenter of an empire at the height of its powers Mm -hmm. a few decades before its decline. Um, And so that kind of power that the British Empire had under Queen Victoria, it's really strange to think about because now that power is currently held by the United States and it might be heading over to China really soon. So to think of this empire grasping for its power as mm-hmm. it's slowly starting to lose it. The last gasps yeah. of the monarchy. Yeah. It's interesting. It's creepy and interesting. And, and I think um, that's why people are fascinated by it because there are so many entry points. Right. So I do think it's worth mentioning that uh, what's most unique about the Jack the Ripper murders, in my view, is that this was a very internationally publicized set of serial killings that remain unsolved. Like, of all the things that are interesting about this case, uh, it's worth noting that Jack was not England's first serial killer, nor the goriest, nor the only one who targeted sex workers. It was the penny newspapers that made him so notorious, which really changed the face of journalism. And... And I found a really great article on the history of sensational reporting, and it's called Murder for a Penny, Jack the Ripper and the Structural Impact of Sensational Reporting by A. Lux Michu. I will add a link to that in the course notes. But 19th century newspapers were undergoing a transformation. In the 1870s, London newspapers were really stodgy and made to appeal to educated elite men. And then the penny press emerged, and the penny press brought about this new journalism that was essentially a modern tabloid, as Alex put it, sensational headlines and exposés, and it was made on the cheap. It was made for a penny, whereas most of these newspapers cost six pennies. And, you know, we're talking about pennies here, so it doesn't sound like much to us, but considering the context of England at the time... 
the poor could not afford to be informed. They could not afford these newspapers, even if they had the education to read in the way it was written. They weren't writing about things that interested the lower class. It was only for the elite. And so these 19th century penny press marked a divide between the classes by way of what they wanted to read about, because they weren't interested in the same things, but it made information accessible to the working classes who wouldn't be able to afford it. And the penny presses, I, I thought it was really interesting. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole in that the penny papers relied on advertising to stay afloat, whereas the elite newspapers relied on subscription because they cost so much more. And so there's this whole thing about the penny papers being originally apolitical, but they became politicized later by virtue of the fact that there were advertisers, political parties got advertising, and these papers focused on working class lives and interests. And the conditions were so bad that these penny papers really had the power to galvanize people in ways that, you know, former forms of early media couldn't before. And that's also where the penny dreadful came from. Once uh, media got wind of the fact that the working class were a viable market for reading for pleasure, they made these books that were cheap easy to read and sensational. And also during this period, my understanding is that the lower classes being literate, period, was a new thing. Mm -hmm. And the more literacy spread, the more dissatisfied they became with their lot in life because they began to understand all the dynamics at play. Again, that's why information and knowledge is power, but it's also kind of a bitch mm -hmm. when you understand all the ways that the world is uh, levied against most of us. And that was a big part, as Andrea mentioned, of of the Ripper case is that these crowds and these masses were becoming really vocal in their displeasure with the way that this case was being handled, uh, particularly where it was happening in London, which is in the Whitechapel district in the East End. So London in the 1880s, there were issues with unemployment, overcrowding, disease, and quote-unquote immorality. There was also obviously the rise of industrialization, which led to a lot of factory jobs, but those conditions were terrible. Terrible. Uh, like fucking awful and for no money. So that led a lot of women to sex work, mm -hmm. to feed their families, uh, feed themselves. It also led to obviously a lot of violence and things that would lead you to self-medicate. Alcoholism, yeah. Yeah. And these were really huge issues because the population were so unhappy and being forced into conditions that we couldn't even imagine today. Mm -hmm. And with this class structure that oppressed them, this led to multiple uprisings and demonstrations and clashes with the police. Love to see it. Mm -hmm. Now, many of London's, again, quote unquote, undesirables, uh, poor people, immigrants, people with disabilities, um, anyone kind of within those categories in the marginalized communities were pushed into the East End neighborhoods called Whitechapel. Um, and this created an area that represented the, again, quote unquote, ills of the day. Now, I don't know if you know this writer, Andrea, Peter Ackroyd. Mm -mm. He's a really prolific British historian and writer, and he wrote a pretty fantastic book called London, the Biography. And I have a couple quotes I wanted to share. He writes, all the anxiety about the city in general then became attached to the East End in particular, as if in some sense it had become a microcosm of London's own dark life. He goes on to say, 
The defining sensation which forever marked the East End and created its public identity was a series of murders ascribed to Jack the Ripper between the late summer and early autumn of 1888. The scale of the sudden and brutal killings effectively marked out the area as one of incomparable violence and depravity. The fact that the killer was never captured seemed only to confirm the impression that the bloodshed was created by the streets themselves and that the East End was the true ripper. So there are a few things as we get into a few of the facts of the case that I wanted to mention. So uh, as we mentioned, there is endless media about Jack the Ripper. And uh, I certainly, I think, consumed a fair amount of it back in the day. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in prep for this episode, I just did a random search on my Apple TV. And and I was just like, uh, Jack the Ripper. And it popped up two documentaries. And I was like, great, I'll rent those for a couple bucks each. Mm -hmm. And I went to watch them the other week. And I think this is why sometimes people rag on like the true crime movement mm. of you know the last few years. But um, this really made me appreciate it because these documentaries seem to be from uh, maybe the 80s or 90s, maybe even early 2000s. And uh, they're all kind of reenactments and like they're <sighs> actors with like bad eye makeup, like skulking around a Victorian set, pretending to be Jack the Ripper and uh-huh. lots of fake screams and this like really obnoxious narration that is like, and those prostitutes were drunk on gin. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And? Go on. And it was so victim blamey and uh. just like, these women basically deserved it. They were asking for it. It was really like, it was like, all right, calm down. Yeah, put down your pitchfork. Yeah. You know, they're human beings, Mm -hmm. and this is a real case, and we can take down the sensationalism a wee bit. Um, I should also mention that my uh, great-grandmother actually grew up in Whitechapel at the time of the uh, Jack the Ripper murders. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, And her name was Emily Rose Sander. And uh, I was talking to my dad about it because uh, when I was interested in Jack the Ripper, he told me this. And uh, and I was like, wow, was it scary for her? And he told me that when she told the story to them, it was essentially that Jack the Ripper was kind of scary. But when her mother tucked her into bed every night, she would say something like, OK, now go to sleep. Don't let Boney get you. Mm, he was a boogeyman. Well, who do you think Boney is? Uh, Jack the Ripper? No, it was Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, my God. Uh, who uh, was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. And that had this ongoing fear in the British psyche because, wow. you know, Napoleon got kind of close to England a little True. bit. And so that was the boogeyman of the day. Yeah. Good old bony. So I don't picture him as bony. <laughs> well, especially because he's so little. He's so wee. Um, guy. I like to think Emily Rose could have taken him, but um, that's that's the story she was told, and that was the story I was told. Um, and, and then when I was in my teens, and I went with my parents to England to see family, and we were staying in London, where my dad is from, <laughs> I got them to go on a Ripper walking tour with me. I've heard those are great. I remember it being really good. I remember we went in the summer, so the light, like the sun was up for a good part of it. So I don't think it was as creepy as it could have been. Mm. The other thing is it wasn't necessarily as creepy. And it was interesting in another way because Whitechapel, like the rest of London, is like not a slum. It's 
super fucking expensive. Oh. So it's not like here's this, you know, slum. It's like, okay, here are places with condos you will never be able to afford. No uh, here is this like Michelin starred restaurant. Here is this. And I remember the tour guide pointing out where um, one of the women died and it was now this totally landscape, beautiful, like inter office building, like courtyard. Uh-huh. And it was like beautifully groomed and like glossy um, slate everywhere. And I was like, Oh, it's like where office people eat their lunch every day. Oh, nice. That's weird. Gentrified murder site. Yes. And I remember my father, uh, this is when he still smoked, trailing behind, just smoking and just like looking so embarrassed that he was like ever on a touristy thing such as really? this. <laughs> yeah. So let's actually talk about the victims. Because in these films, we're not going to get to talk about them a whole lot. And I want to make sure that they get some time. And so what I'm going to talk about are what are referred to as the canonical five. These are the five women who were truly believed to be Jack the Ripper's victims. However, there were other murders done in similar-ish ways around the same time, um, who some people believe are also Ripper murders. But again, a lot of conjecture and not very much has been proven. Yeah, there are some who believe that even even the central five were murdered by different people. Yeah. Like the theories are endless. Yeah. I'm just kind of taking us through some of the basic elements right now. So commonalities of these murders. Uh, All women were killed with deep slash wounds to the throat, Mm -hmm. followed by continued uh, desecration to the bodies of the women, including disemboweling and some removal of the flesh. The body of Marianne Nichols was found in the early hours of Friday, August 31st. Annie Chapman's body was discovered also in the early morning on Saturday, September 8th. Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were both killed in the early hours of Sunday, September 30th. And the body of Mary Jane Kelly was found not on the streets of Whitechapel, but in a single bedroom on Friday, November 9th. Her face had been, quote, hacked beyond all recognition. So not exactly back to back. Like there were oftentimes several weeks in between. And a lot of films like to kind of squish them all together. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, we'll get into it, but From Hell feels like it takes place within a week. Totally. Yeah. And it would have to these days for us to connect it in that way, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's so much fucking murder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now there is uh, huge debates over everything that had to do with Jack the Ripper, most notably all, all of the letters that got sent to the police, yes. taunting them. And the press. In the press. Um, now, there is the infamous From Hell letter, uh-huh. which uh, then there's the signature of Jack the Ripper, and that's where the name comes from. Uh, but again, some people just don't believe any of this. So take all of this with a grain of salt. And speaking of grains of salt, I just want to walk everyone through some of the main suspects and where some of these suspects come from, because I think it's going to be really important to our overall understanding of the films we're going to talk about. So suspects. These are the most common ones. Again, you can fall down a rabbit hole and be forever looking at suspects. Montague John Druitt. He was an upper middle class man, uh, but there's little concrete evidence, especially because he committed suicide. And a lot of the forensic evidence at the time points to him having killed himself before Mary Kelly's death. There is Carl Fickenbaum. Uh, He's a German merchant sailor. He had other attacks against women, um, and his own lawyer believed him to be Jack the Ripper. He was 
was eventually sent to the electric chair in the U.S. for murdering a woman in America. And that crime is noted to have had similarities to Jack the Ripper. There is Aaron Kaminsky, who a lot of people now believe to have been Jack the Ripper. And he was a suspect to the police. And that is because some and that is because some recent DNA evidence was found on Catherine Eddowes' shawl. Uh, there is Francis Craig, who is a journalist uh, and a husband of Mary Kelly. Uh, it was believed that he killed the women and then her when he discovered that Mary was a sex worker. Walter Sickert, uh, who is a painter, he was famously accused by crime writer Patricia Cromwell, though he had been a suspect before that. Potential DNA evidence also linking him to be a killer. And then, of course, he painted sex workers. So that must mean he is the killer and that it was all coded symbolism through his work. And then the most outlandish, but the most scintillating, which we are going to be talking about, Prince Albert Victor, grandson of Queen Victoria. And this theory comes from Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution in 1976. That one is my favorite. Yes. It's the juiciest. Yeah. So there are two theories for him being a suspect or involved in this somehow. So theory one. Albert contracted syphilis from a sex worker in his travels to the West Indies. As the disease took hold of his brain, he began to attack sex workers in London as revenge. However, this is widely disproved because apparently he was not in the UK at the time. Mm. The second theory is the killings were the work of royal agents as Albert fell in love with, got married to, and fathered a child with a working class Catholic girl. Mm -hmm. To conceal this, the agents brutally murdered and killed all those with knowledge of the relationship and child, uh, leading to a Masonic conspiracy. And all of these theories are kind of based on the testimony of a man who claimed to be the grandson of the woman who was married to Albert. So those are our kind of like hot moments Mm -hmm. of shitty men who are also shitty and may have also been Jack the Ripper. Right. Last few things before we get into it, because I know we all want to, but I want to talk about a few other famous Ripper-esque style killers that follow Jack the Ripper. There is the Yorkshire Ripper who murdered 13 women and attempted to murder seven others in the north of England from 1975 to 1980. There is a fascinating documentary series on it on Netflix. So check that out if you are interested. And a lot of people also parallel uh, Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac Killer, Mm. not only for the brutality of his murders, but the fact that he was never caught and the taunting letters to the police. To the media, yeah. And then I finally, finally want to just call out a few other major appearances by Jack the Ripper in media. Again, these are endless. This isn't all of them. Um, I'm sorry if I don't mention your favorite. Please don't tweet at me. So again, endless books, uh, theater appearances in film. A couple call-outs are Study in Terror from 1965 and Murdered by Decree in 1979, which both pit Sherlock Holmes against the Ripper. Uh, Time after time, uh, 1979, a romantic sci-fi drama thriller something something, which we see H.G. Wells, played by Malcolm McDowell, chasing a time-traveling Jack the Ripper to modern-day America. My mom really liked that movie, and I feel like I remember it being on a lot when I was a kid. Okay. There's the Jack the Ripper miniseries um, from 1988, which stars Michael Caine, which is a really interesting uh, two-parter that our friend and editor, Alan actually sent us, and it's a really interesting look at the case, uh, focusing on the procedural aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Jack the Ripper also makes appearances in The Twilight Zone in Star Trek. Uh, There's a more recent British series called Ripper Street from 2012 to 2016 when it aired, and that is about Whitechapel after the Jack the Ripper murders. And of course, uh, would anything be complete if Jack the Ripper did not make an appearance in a video game? 
It wouldn't. Jack the Ripper got his own video game. It was called Jack the Ripper Letters from Hell, and it came out in 2010. Huh. Fuck, I want to play that. Please, let do me... Do you play as Jack, or do you solve the murders? I fucking hope you don't play as Jack, because that's fucked up. <laughs> okay, we'll save my feminist rantings for later. They'll come into play a little later. Let's talk about these films. Let's talk about The Lodger, a story of the London fog from 1927. And I just want to say from the outset that my experience with silent film is very, very limited. Uh, you know, I watched Dante's Inferno with a number of different soundtracks, especially when I was giving that presentation on Hell. Uh, we, we did our German Expressionism episode, and I was kind of like, okay, sometimes these are a these little are bit of a important. slog. Exactly. Yay. But this one, I have to say, I was delighted mm. throughout. It is a visual feast for the senses. And at its climax, even though I had a sense of what was going to happen, having done my due diligence and my research, I was on the edge of my seat. Yeah, I mean, this is Hitchcock's third film. Uh, the first one kind of truly considered to be his first film as he masters his style. And you can tell, like, this is a guy who's going to make a lot of thrilling, emotional films. Mm -hmm. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into The Lodger, a story of the London Fog. concerns the Bunting household, a working-class family consisting of homemaker landlady, her husband, who takes shift work as a waiter, and their daughter, Daisy, who is dating a police detective, Joe. One night, amid a rash of mysterious murders by the serial killer known as The Avenger, a mysterious lodger comes to stay at the Buntings, a man who insists on locking up his black bag and removing all the paintings of beautiful women in his suite. While Mrs. Bunting becomes increasingly suspicious of the lodger's restless pacing and late-night outings, a romance develops between the lodger and Daisy, putting him in the crosshairs of the detective Joe. Eventually, Daisy breaks things off with Joe, who becomes convinced that the lodger is the Avenger and that Daisy is his next target. He arrives at the Bunting House with a search warrant and finds a bunch of incriminating evidence. The lodger is arrested, but manages to escape and meet Daisy in the street to explain away the evidence, that he was actually hunting the Avenger as well after the murder of his own sister. By the time they're able to convince Joe of his innocence, the mob had already caught on, and they chase and beat the lodger until it's revealed that the true Avenger had been found and arrested beyond a doubt. An epilogue shows that the lodger and Daisy are living happily ever after. Question mark? It's so sweet. It's such a sweet romance. Isn't it nice that the lodger was innocent? Well, that's just because you think Ivor Novello is hot. Well, it... Actually, yeah, that is true. Yes. I think Ivor Novello is hot. And it's not just the guy liner. Now, this film was based on a short story called The Lodger by Marie Adelaide Belloc Laundes. And this short story was first published in McClure's magazine in 1911. And an extended version ran as a series in the Daily Telegraph in 1913 with the same name. And I was able to read it. 
And I'm so glad I did because my feelings, oh my God, my I'm feelings. So, I have not read the, I read like a synopsis of it and I didn't have time to read it. So I'm it's excited to hear about this. Really, really good. It is oh, cool. an amazing read and I was able to find it on like wikisource.org. Like it, it's so old, it's in the public domain and that it's, it's, it's legal to be able to share it. But I really enjoyed the read. I'm happy to share that link. So you should all read it. And even though, you know, you've seen The Lodger, I'm going to talk some spoilers it is a very terror-inducing read. There are some really suspenseful moments that really affected me. But what was most interesting to me is that the story was all told from Mrs. Bunting's point of view. This movie is very similar to the book, but the studio added pressure to add a love interest to the story and to show the suspect to be innocent in order to protect the career of Ivor Novello. Can you imagine if movies were like that today? If they were just like, oh, sorry, this is our Hollywood darling and he can't play a bad guy. I have some thoughts about that, but we'll talk about that in the next film. Absolutely right. But no, I can't imagine that. And I think we uh, thankfully are in a place where we don't always see that. But now that actors have increased power, a lot of actors don't want to be seen as quote unquote bad guys. But the villain is the best role. Uh, I know. Why do you think it's called being John Malkovich and not like being Tom Hanks? Because <laughs> John Malkovich is fucking interesting. Yes. Excellent example of a Hollywood villain and an excellent example of like someone building his bricks on being a badass villain. And insofar as we understand... The studio put pressure on Hitchcock to change the story in order to protect the career of Novello. The key difference from the book is that Mrs. Bunting doesn't turn Mr. Sleuth in. She doesn't even tell her husband. And there are so many themes. There are so many layers to this difference. There's the mistrust of police. And then there's the really feminist themes of women not being believed, women being sharper than they seem, and willful self-deception and internalized misogyny, Mm. which is something that we talked about a bit last episode, Mm -hmm. I think. One of the biggest themes that interested me was the idea of keeping up appearances. And again, this harkens back to when we were setting the stage of what Whitechapel was like at the time. The poor were poor and on the verge of destitution and everybody else was kind of like, okay. And the Buntings, they appear affluent. They've got a really nice home, beautiful furnishings, but they're quite desperate for money. And in the short story, the author takes pains to give the context of had they been actually poor, they might have had the help of a community. But at that time, to be on the verge of decrepitude, to ask for help would be to admit your situation. And there is so much desperation to maintain the illusion of financial security. Uh, the Buntings were slowly selling off their belongings, but they had to keep this property and keep it clean and spotless, even though they could scarcely afford the penny to pay for the newspaper when the murders begin. There's a strain on their marriage. The two kind of swipe at each other. And then Mrs. Bunting, told from her point of view, she notes that the lodger was a gentleman right away and she is so, so relieved that he is a classy guy and that he's able to pay so much in advance and that like she really looks at him as her meal ticket. He could change everything. He could turn their luck around. And so when she notes Mr. Sleuth's scorn 
for women. She not only accepts it, but she starts to agree with it. And her inner monologue has her blaming the victims and telling herself that, you know, it's better that these sex workers are no longer filling the poor houses and stuff. Oh, my God. And yet you can tell that there's conflict within her because she becomes sick. She becomes actually sick with her inner conflict that when people bring up Jack the Ripper and she thinks about her lodger, she has fits of hysteria and fainting spells and stuff like that. She knows that he is the one and he indeed proves to be the one in the story, but she has to protect him to keep her paycheck coming. And she's also scared that if she were to turn him in, it would bring scandal to her home and that they would never financially recover. And I found that so, so, so fascinating. And there's also like fascination Morbid fascination with true crime is also a theme in the short story, as Mr. Bunting and Daisy got the sense that Daisy was Mr. Bunting's daughter from a previous marriage Mm -hmm. uh, who is working for their rich auntie. Um, And so she's not Mrs. Bunting's daughter and they have some dynamics, let's just say. But Mr. Bunting and Daisy are fascinated by the crimes to the point where they leverage their friendship with Joe for insider access to the Black Museum at Scotland Yard to see bits of evidence. So they're just chomping at the bit. They are fascinated by this crime, which bugs Mrs. Bunting because she wants the crimes to go away so she can keep collecting her money. So there's this tremendous crisis of morality and it paints the picture of a society so fractured that a poor woman feels like she's better off overlooking and even abetting a murderer to stay afloat. And she is a good woman. Like, she's a woman. You want to be on her side, but the circumstances just have it stacked against her. I loved it. I need to read it. Highly recommend. Very readable. But again, in the end, and like, I don't feel like I can give stuff away because the sense of terror I had and suspense uh, in the culmination of this story, but her lodger is very much Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. It is confirmed and he flees. And so then Mrs. Bunting has to live with the realization that in not turning him in, she may be complicit in later murders. Yeah, fuck. And in my research, um, Bellock Lowndes heard a kind of version, a very short version of this as an anecdote at a dinner party, uh, that this person had friends who had a lodging house and they thought one of their tenants might be the Ripper and that she kind of extrapolated it into a short story or novella. And that's how we got The Lodger. And as I mentioned, this was Hitchcock's third film, but the first kind of in his style. Uh, And it features a lot of reoccurring themes that we would see throughout his career, uh, such as a man falsely accused, the Hitchcock blonde, distrust of authority and useless police, and in my opinion, kind of a misdirect through the film or a MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the cinematic depiction of the Lodger pacing back and Mm -hmm. forth with a clear floor. Like from what I understand, that hadn't been done before. It was a really uh, noticeable artistic flourish. There were some overhead shots of like the stairs, which he uses a lot in his films. Mm-hmm. He, I find he's so fascinated with stairs. You know, quickest recall is either Notorious with the key shot when they're going up the stairs or the overhead shot in Psycho mm. uh, when the detective is going up the stairs and Mrs. Bate comes and is like, rah, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about lodging houses, uh, because this is a pretty important part of uh, both the novella and the film itself. Lodging houses were really popular in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. They were largely for single working adults, also students and divorcees. It was a response in large part to the urban housing crises in large cities across the Western world. And this allowed the landlord to supplement 
their income with the rent paid by their tenants.、Mm-hmm. And the landlords were often land ladies. They were often older women who were either single or widowed and didn't have the means to keep up、uh, finances for a house, much like Mrs. Bunting.、Mm-hmm. So this was a pretty common practice. However, there are a lot of issues over overpriced rent and poor conditions due to ever increasing demand in these urban、oh, centers. Sounds like Toronto right now. It sounds like most fucking urban centers,、yeah. you know.、Um, and I found a really interesting article called "Lodger Evil and the Transformation of Progressive Housing Reform from 1890 to 1930," and this is by David T. Beto and Linda Royster Beto. We'll link this in the show notes. And while this paper focuses on、uh, the American experience of lodging houses, I think it speaks to the overall issues within the system. So they talk about how obviously lodging houses. Are subletting a room to a tenant to supplement a family income. Most of the lodgers were single men from the same ethnic group as the family who owned the home. This practice circumvented the more formal reliance on single-person apartments or homes or boarding houses, which were owned and operated by more formal businesses. Building codes and other restrictions were rarely checked in on, and this allowed for the lodger industry, little like person-to-person industry, to flourish. Now, the term lodger. Evil comes into play in 1903 as a response to the increasing anxiety about immigration to the U.S. from Eastern and Southern Europe, and this is on top of building racism, xenophobia, and anti-Semitism that was present, like. Super fucking present, and this also led to massive overcrowding in urban centers, particularly New York City, as well as Chicago. And this kind of lodging setup with like a random person coming into your home was depicted as part of the evil of living in an urban setting.、Mm-hmm. Uh, by 1908, overcrowding was described as New York's greatest evil by the New York Times. By 1912, commissions were recommending that lodgers quote. Never be tolerated because they were enemies of family peace. End quote.、Hmm. And this paper actually cites the lodger by Belloc Lowndes as an example of how lodger evil had entered the mainstream.、Mm. So it's interesting because it sounds like the lodger, the novella, as well as this film, is kind of drawing in from some very like real realities of the time and、mm. how people got by, and then kind of looking at how this media has stigmatized how we take people into our homes. You know, it's hard. It is hard to trust people, especially. In your home, it can feel really scary sometimes. I mean, there's a whole subgenre of horror about home invasion、mm-hmm. for that reason. And I think this is a very effective story, The Lodger,、um, but also the way it was kind of turning into a pejorative term. I find really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think what I really love about it, for our purposes, is how it situates Jack the Ripper as you know, it wasn't just something that affected sex workers. It wasn't just、mm-hmm. something that affected police. It was something that affected the wider population in that everybody was looking at each other sideways, and people trying to make a buck, even through legitimate means, as having a lodging house,、uh, had to be paranoid and had to be on guard and had to maybe fight with their morality about what was going on. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting. I'm so. This is one of the reasons why I'm so glad we're doing this film is because it's. 
so different from so many of the other Jack the Ripper appearances in mm-hmm. media because it's not really about him. It's about the people who are affected right. by those killings. Uh-huh. You know, you've got a, a woman who could be a victim in Daisy, um, her family, and they. I feel like it's pretty clear they are both her parents in this film. In the film. Yeah, yeah. in the film, um, who are concerned, but they also need to financially support their family. And then you have the lodger himself who is just trying to get the murderer as well. And then, of course, Joe, who is a bit of a bumbling detective Mm -hmm. uh, who sees this as his kind of shot at the big time. Even though he's so ineffectual. Such a tit. Like, get away with your fucking heart cookie. And we're going to talk more about uh, Alfie and how he feels about women and how he treats his leading ladies. But I loved how Daisy was rebuffing him. Like, mm-hmm. when I was watching it, I was like, oh, shit, she's got some sass. I like her. Mm-hmm. And how often can you say that about a leading lady in an older movie, especially a movie this fucking old? <laughs> so let's talk about class in The Lodger because it is present throughout this film in so many different ways. Now, the lodger by the end of the film is revealed to be from the aristocracy or certainly the upper class, though there are some pretty big clues to this from the outset. Yes. The fact that he drops money on the rent so easily, mm-hmm. um, the fact that he can buy Daisy that dress. And read, he um, can play chess. He can do all of those things. And this also goes into some of the Jack the Ripper mythology, believing that he was someone from the upper class. And we see this so clearly in The Lodger because he's the only one with true mobility. Mm. He's able to kind of move through the plot and the narrative all over the place, from walking in and getting a room, to hanging out with Daisy, to showing up at her fashion show. Mm -hmm. Um, He seems almost invisible in that way, which is so interesting, except when at the end of the film, he's still in handcuffs and they go to the pub. Yes. And his appearance is remarked upon not only because he's a hottie, yeah. but because they've covered his hands with yeah. like a blanket so that no one can see the handcuffs. And the people at the pub begin to assume that he's uh, disabled. Right. And I thought it was interesting because for the rest of the film, he's like doing whatever, who knows, what, going to fashion shows, it's cool. But the second he seems to be marginalized in some way, people are commenting on it. People are noticing it mm-hmm. and going, what the hell is up? Is he okay? Blah, blah, blah. And then they clue on to the fact that he may be escaped and is the Avenger. Mm-hmm. And then they get their torches out. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing about the lodger is, again, this is a great visual thing they do in the film, and it's realistic to how lodging houses worked, is his room is on the second floor. Mm. Uh, the Bunting family, Joe, they're all largely seen and occupying the downstairs. And the lodger's just hanging out upstairs. Mrs. Bunting can hear his footsteps. This is what starts to clue her in a bit more. So I felt like that just, you know, really literal representation of him being above her mm-hmm. was so clear. Ah. Now, the only character who is kind of close to the lodger slightly because she's the one going upstairs and is like, hi, I'm Daisy. What's up? You're <laughs> cute. Which, I, frankly, I would have done too. Is, of course, Daisy. And she is so interesting, in part because she's got the blonde hair, which seems to be a modus operandi for the killer. Mm-hmm. And she's also a model. She seems to be a high fashion model model. So she's modeling these glamorous clothes. That was so interesting. Right. That setup of that situation. She's unable to afford them seemingly herself. Uh Yet you have these kind of old dowdy women who clearly have a ton of money who are like, to them, Daisy is aspirational. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it shows how fake 
this kind of class and the status is.、Mm-hmm. You know, like sure, you can spend all your money on that five thousand dollar handbag, but what does it mean? Well, they had to make her a viable target for Jack the Ripper, and yet not a sex worker, because again, you know, if we can't have the star be a murderer, certainly we can't have our female protagonist be a sex worker.、Mm-hmm. Like then we're not going to like her, we're not going to root for her, we're not going to want her to survive. So it was interesting that Hitchcock、uh, or whoever. Took that liminal space to be like, okay, well, well she's a fashion model,、mm-hmm. and also I felt like my heart kind of broke early in the film when、uh, the girls were talking about, oh, this murderer likes blondes, so we're wearing the- these wigs and these pieces to conceal. I was like, holy shit, rape culture from the very onset, women altering their appearance and their agency to. Accommodate a situation of a fucking murderer on the street.、Mm-hmm. I also thought the most chilling moment of the film to me is when Joe, who clearly kind of wants to get with Daisy and marry her, says, "When I put a rope around the Avenger's neck, I'll put a ring on Daisy's finger."、Mm-hmm. Like they're both circular objects, from handcuffs to a ring, and they're both. To me, in the sentence, equated as shackles. That's right. They're status symbols for him. It's a double conquest. Yeah, equating those two things is so creepy.、Mm-hmm. I don't know if the film meant it to be that creepy. Nah, I, I feel like it might have. Maybe one person on set got it. We did. We did.、Um, again, as you mentioned, Mrs. Bunting is probably the most all-seeing character, but there's so much tension between her and the lodger, and you know her wanting things for Daisy that she can't provide.、Mm-hmm. Um, to the point, even when she suspects the lodger of being the Avenger, she doesn't come out and say it. Really, she's just like, "Don't spend time with him." Yeah. Again, she's protecting her investment, and I just I thought it was so interesting that like women who are depicted as So powerless in so many spheres. We've got this really impotent police detective who's at the Buntings all the time. But Mrs. Bunting sees everything. And did he even think to question her? Did anyone think to question the women? Like, who were the lodgers who came about? What were they like? What were they about? These are the eyes and ears of the town because they occupied the domestic space, and that was so undervalued.、Mm-hmm. I did also want to talk a bit about the gaze of this film and how the film directs us and misdirects us. There it was, hitchcocks us. It it yeah it cocks that hitch. <laughs> it cocks it.、Um, now the scene where Daisy and the lodger are playing chess,、mm-hmm. and Daisy knocks over、uh, the couple chess pieces, so she bends down to pick them up, and the lodger. Grabs like the fucking fire poker, and you're、mm-hmm. like, "That's the end of Daisy." Bye. Bye. And then it's like, "Oh no, we're just flirting." It's such a clear setup. If you're following the film and invested in it, you're like, "Oh, clearly the lodger's kind of into her, but he also has a murderous instinct." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Uh, and I think it kind of keeps that tension going throughout the film. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the text that is on screen throughout the film. Yes, particularly it's not just in the John Luke placards. <laughs> it's not uses no. It like- There is like animated graphics that appear throughout.、Mm-hmm. Most notably, the first thing we see in the film is a woman screaming, followed by that、um, kind of animated text "Tonight Golden Curls." I love how that's done because it looks like a neon sign,、mm-hmm. which is such an urban, industrialized thing. Exactly, and it feels like it's some kind of show or something like that. Then it cuts to her dead body. This creates meaning around "Tonight Golden Curls" that it is a threat rather than an innocuous name of. A 
show that's on right now. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock coding meaning into these words, it creates a symbol that implies death and murder. And as the kind of text reappears throughout the film, it's a sense of like, oh, oh, death is going to come. Murder is going to come. It's cluing us in. It's setting us up for that. Yeah, it's setting them up for that. I think it kind of implicates the showbiz industry as come and get them. Women mm-hmm. on a platter, like have at her. Exactly. And then I also thought in the text right before the epilogue, it says, all stories have an end, which is correct. It's pretty inaccurate when it comes to the story of Jack the Ripper that we're mm-hmm. still talking about a full several hundred years later. And all I can think is that this phrase, and when it appears, calls attention to the narrative wrapping up and the formulaic nature of this story. It might be a little shout out to the fact that Hitchcock had to change the ending a bit from the novella, or it's just a Hey, everyone, we know that was kind of wild and it was kind of crazy, but don't worry, we're wrapping it up and maybe it'll be okay. Go home and sleep tight. Yeah. But in this film, we've seen a narrative run amok with the lodger almost being killed by a mob. So it feels really unsafe and we're we're kind of like, oh, he got away and oh, he, he had a bit of time in the hospital and love pulled him through. And we're kind of like, okay, everything was crazy, but now they're together. And everyone's happy mm-hmm. and everything's fine. It's all good. And then um, the lodger and Daisy kind of pull away and they're embracing and they're kissing. Mm-hmm. And yet in the background, it starts flashing two night golden curls, two night golden curls, two night golden curls. Mm. And I was like, so is he not the Avenger? What the fuck? Does this story have an end? So I think it is in the larger kind of well-made film structure meant to say, yes, this is an end. However, to me, Hitchcock hasn't done enough to dissuade us that tonight Golden Curls is not the earmark of a murder or death that is about to come. Um, So to me, it feels like a really um, scary, uncomfortable ending, which I really like. Um, And it actually reminded me so much of the ending of uh, Claire Denis' film Trouble Every Day. Mm -mm. It evoked that exact same, like, who knows what and how much do they know? Mm. But yet they're going to go forward in this relationship. And it was chilling. So finally, to wrap this up, I want to talk a little bit about the name The Avenger. Yes, please. And the triangle. Yeah, that was kind of a theme, right? I was struck by that and I was like, is the Lodger the Avenger because he's looking to avenge the death? You know, like the the setup was so obvious. But when it's proven not to be him, that nickname is kind of mystifying. Exactly, because the Avenger is killing these women. Uh Uh-huh. And to avenge means retribution in my mind. Yeah. I even Googled it. Vigilante. Yeah. Yeah. Checked out. Uh, To Andrea, your point just now, what is the lodger if not an avenger seeking retribution for his sister's death? Mm -hmm. Hence, that's why I think the serial killer in this film is actually the MacGuffin of the film. Mm. It's not really about him. It's about this kind of family drama that's happening uh, between class and status and all of these things and characters just trying to work out what the hell is happening in the midst of a fraught situation happening outside of their home that they may or may not be inviting in. Mm. Um, And I also think it's interesting because every time the Avenger kills, he leaves a triangle, like a a note that says like the Avenger and a triangle on it. Like he's got branding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He got an agency to come in. A scrap of paper. (laughs) It's not subtle. He got some like hipster agency to come in and be like, you need a hashtag. Yeah, you need it. But of course, uh, triangles are really present in a lot of narratives. Um, And I picked up on three triangles. I think the really obvious one is the love triangle. 
Oh, which yeah. you see Daisy at the top and Joe and the Lodger at the bottom. Power, I want to say. There might be a better term for it. Um, but I would put that with the Lodger at the top because of his status, because of his money, his ability to move kind of throughout uh, the society that we see with kind of Daisy and Joe beneath him because they're both working and they're seemingly working class, but they aren't as free to move about as he is. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the triangle of authority, which would be Joe at the top and Daisy and the lodger underneath him because Joe can, you know, say he's a suspect, have him arrested, have him searched, uh, go through all his belongings, uh, and basically almost have him killed by a mob. <laughs> I loved when uh, when they got him free from the mob and Joe's like, thank God I got here in time. It's like, shut up, Joe. That dribble of blood that came out of his <laughs> mouth. I was like, how did that happen? That's, you know, maybe a horror fan, you get caught up in those little visceral details. Yeah, it was probably like some late stage consumption or something. Tuberculosis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there are all these kind of themes that are present within this film that evoke elements of the Jack the Ripper lore yeah. um, while also kind of dancing around it in a way that I think is really important because it feels like this is a story about the people who are trying to disseminate this story mm-hmm. and who are affected by it in different ways while not actually being like the d- lead detective or, you know, one of the sex workers or the queen herself. Mm-hmm. This is about common people grappling with extraordinary situations. Yeah, I agree. And I think that theme carries forward somewhat into the next film we're going to talk about. I think there are some interesting tensions, uh, more problematic problems, and even more problematic men involved. Are you ready to go there? Let's crack a fresh beer and see if we're ready to dive into From Hell. Inspector, I know your reputation for making brilliant guesses that turn out to be right. Someone told me you claim to dream the answers. Sometime this evening, a bang tail was murdered in George Yard. That doesn't sound much out of the ordinary. It was the way she was done, Inspector. It was the way that she was done that cries out for a man of your talent. He can foresee the victims. I saw her. I saw her face. Your vision's about me. Most definitely. You know, they used to burn men like you alive. He could sense the suspects. He must be someone with money. And how do you know that? This ain't killing for profit. This is ritual. But for an inspector in charge of the world's most infamous investigations. He's punishing them. I want double shifts within this area. We'll have mayhem on the streets. I believe this was done by someone with a working knowledge of dissection. An educated man, that's preposterous. The last thing he expected. I want you and your friends off the streets until I can sort this thing out. I do trust you. Was to get close to someone who would be next. Jack the Ripper's not finished. Where is he? I want you. See the 20th century. (laughs) 
In London in 1888, sex workers begin to meet grisly ends in the Whitechapel district of the city. Police Inspector Aberline is tasked with unraveling the mystery. Aberline struggles with an opium addiction after the death of his wife in childbirth and continues to get strange premonitions that lead him closer to the killer. Aberline uncovers that all the women were present at the marriage of their friend Anne Crook to a wealthy man and have knowledge of the couple's child. It is revealed that the rich man is actually Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's grandson, and that the monarchy is using its powers to kidnap and lobotomize Anne and remove Albert from the situation. Their baby is put into hiding by Mary Kelly, who comes to aid Aberline in his investigation and eventually falls in love with him. The Queen asks the Freemasons to handle the situation with the women, and the figure of Jack the Ripper begins to brutally kill them all. Dr. William Gull, who has been helpful and kind to Aberline, is revealed to be the Ripper as Aberline tries to stop him from his final kill, Mary Kelly. Unbeknownst to either man, Mary has fled London with the baby, and Gull's final kill is that of a young woman who happens to be staying in Mary's room. The Freemasons decide to lobotomize Gull as he is out of control, and Aberline considers following Mary to her new life after he realizes that it was not her who was killed. However, he doesn't go because he fears bringing the wrath of the Freemasons upon Mary and the child. Shortly thereafter, Aberline overdoses, and in the final scene, Mary is shown raising a child in a cottage far away from the city. This romance, man, did not reach me. Certainly way less than the contrived romance between the lodger and Daisy. Holy shit. And I think my opinion about uh, Heather Graham and her acting ability is long recorded in this podcast. In the very opening of this film, she like walks down the street and I'm like, you can't even walk normally. <laughs> I'm not even convinced you're walking. Well, she also looks like a Hollywood actor with like, clear skin, beautiful hair, a gorgeous figure. Yeah. Like, this is not the women who were present within this community at this time. Like, yeah. Heather Graham just, like, walked out from hair and makeup. Yeah, there's abject poverty to the point that everybody's missing most of their teeth, and here's this <laughs> clean-faced beauty. Uh, actually, I did find a fun quote about Heather Graham. The executive producer said of casting Graham that her beauty, quote, made you want to save her. Ew. Yeah. That's not okay. It's a little like the call is coming from inside the house with mm, this kind of Ugly film. sentiment. Murder all the homely sex workers, but save us the beauties. Well, and also... Mary Kelly in this film is never shown to have a client. Right. Her purity is intact. Like, she's a sex worker, but, like... She's reluctant, you know? You know. She's, she's not like the rest. She's different. But we should say that From Hell is based on the graphic novel, uh, written by Alan Moore and illustrated by Eddie Campbell. Mm -hmm. um, Alan Moore is an influential graphic novel author. Um, he really helped popularize it um, with Watchmen and V for Vendetta. Uh, he's notoriously inclusive and odd and kind of a curmudgeon, but he's, you know, really taken these classic stories mm -hmm. and put really big spins on them and challenged the narratives in really interesting ways. And this graphic novel was uh, was also released uh, similar to The Lodger in a serial format. 
the issues came out from 1989 to 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, from Hell, I had a chance to pick it up and read it uh, in advance of this episode. And I will say it is more wide-ranging, far more intricate, dense, metaphorical, abstract, and also realistic at the same time yeah. instead of the film. Right. It is huge. It is a, it is a tome. And I actually have uh, what I like to call my um, slight definition of my bicep that I like to call my from say, hell tone. When you say that you picked it up, I was like, you physically lifted it? Because I, I was sitting on my couch and I kind of had to hold it up and I had to like put it down every so often because my arms got tired. Yeah. Even the paperback is a big fat yeah. And so all of this was based on the from hell letter, a.k.a. the Lusk letter that was a particularly notorious letter. You know, there's a lot of scholarship about all the letters that came into media. But the Lusk letter uh, named after the chairman of the vigilante committee, who was George Lusk in October 1888. And this letter, which was signed off from hell, was also sent along with half a preserved human kidney. And so it's a very notorious letter. And that is where this graphic novel in the film gets its name. The victim, Catherine Eddowes, uh, the corpse was missing kidneys. Like, if there is believed to be any kind of real letter from the Ripper, it is often thought to be that one. Right. Now, the film kind of takes a lot of elements that are happening in the graphic novel and kind of translates them to the film. Yeah, Andrea is making, like, a weird, wincy face. To and a I agree. lesser extent. To a much lesser extent. And I will say, I was a fan of the film when it came out. It came out 20 years ago. Like, yeah, 2001. I remember seeing it in theaters. I think I had the DVD and watched it a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And I will say for someone, you know, I was, you know, in my teen years, um, it was a great entry point to a lot of the themes that I probably at that age may not have fully appreciated and picked up on in the graphic novel. I agree with that. I appreciated how Whitechapel was pretty much a character in and of itself. Mm -hmm. The depiction of the decrepitude of the time was palpable. And I especially liked, and you probably picked up on this, do you ever hear the etymology of the term hangover? No. That uh, the term hangover referred to this period when people were largely alcoholics, and if you couldn't afford to get a proper hotel room, the best you could do were these lodging places that just basically gave you a rope to lean on (laughs) so that you didn't have to lie in the dirt. And that is in this film. And you see them leaning up against it, and I was like, oh, fuck. It's one thing to know that such conditions conditions existed, but the way it was depicted, you can almost smell Whitechapel and it stinks. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of like the main differences, oh God, there's so many differences, but yes. two for our kind of purposes in our conversation today are the fact that in the graphic novel, Gull is revealed to be Jack the Ripper in like issue three. Yeah. Very clear from the outset. So the film creates like a whodunit narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more like a kind of classical narrative, whereas the From Hell graphic novel is, you know, you've got these kind of two meeting points of like, you know who the killer is and you know the crimes that are going to happen and what are the intersections between them. Right. So it's a really interesting, complex tension. But anyone seeing this film who hadn't read the book should still smell that killer coming. I don't know if I did. Really? Maybe I did. Okay. I don't know. And, and also the fact that Aberline 
Einstein is, of course, in the graphic novel, but he is portrayed as he was at the time—a middle-aged man. He's much more of a secondary character, and、uh, he's not as central to the main plot. He's around, he's doing stuff, but not as effectively as his mutant psychic counterpart in the yeah, film. Yeah, the trope of the detective who has a bit of supernatural clairvoyance to add to his skills is—you know—I I always think of CSI.、Mm-hmm. I always think of you know what's his nuts putting on his sunglasses and yeah. It's not just that he's good at his job; he's preternaturally good at his job. He sees things that others don't see. Blah. Well, and and there is a psychic character in some other Jack the Ripper stories.、Uh, there's a psychic character in the mini series from 1988, and there is a psychic character in the graphic novel. However, in the opening kind of prologue、uh, to the graphic novel, the psychic says, "Like, yeah, I was a fraud, but whenever I predicted things, they happened,、mm. and that's like fucking eerie." Yeah, and that's really interesting. But、uh, yeah, we we've just kind of. You know, taken away a lot of the interesting tension that exists and that is so unique to the graphic novel, and just kind of slotted in a lot of plot points and some ideas that happen within it into a much more formulaic Hollywood structure. And when From Hell was released as its own,、um, you know, paperback, there is an appendix. It's Appendix Two, and it's called Dance of the Gull Catchers,、mm-hmm. and it's、um, illustrated kind of like a graphic novel, and it has a lot of sentiments that. Criticize an industry determined to profit on this case, and it also talks about the notion of performative British characteristics, which absorb Jack the Ripper as something for them to promote, like the British Tourism Board.、Mm-hmm. Um, and it even kind of parodies From Hell coming soon to a movie theater.、Mm-hmm. Um, so Moore and Campbell are kind of taking the piss out of everything, while also acknowledging that they are kind of part of it, which I、yeah. thought was really interesting. I agree with that. What I've read from Alan Moore, I've always really enjoyed、uh, the Watchmen, V for Vendetta, and From Hell. And I think he has a real knack for taking something ideological、mm-hmm. and something abstract and turning it into either a monologue or a song. He'll present it in a way that is narrative and interesting, but speaks to these larger themes. And I think that is, you know, a big part of his influence on、uh, the graphic novel universe is that he's able to elevate these discussions through these abstract. Means and so I felt like the film took these abstractions and made them a bit more tangibly supernatural.、Mm-hmm. Uh, when Gull's eyes go dark toward the end of the movie and he becomes the Ripper, I found myself kind of rolling my eyes to be like, "Do you have to get that literal? Is he actually transforming?" Well, and you know, production of a film had been talked about before the series was even finished being published, with more stating that Sean Connery、um, had been cast in 1997. This, of course, did not come to pass as Gull. Or Aberline, possibly Aberline, I would think. Weird. Well, I mean, different film. Yeah, and he would have been closer to Aberline's actual age, right? During the case, but we can't have a romance between a sex worker and a John Sean Connery. Connery. <laughs> the studio won't see it. <laughs> Um, however, from Hell, directors、uh, the Hughes brothers went into production in 2000, and、uh, the Hughes brothers had made films such as Menace to Society and Dead Presidents, which are very much about black culture and community within America and the violence that、um, is pushed against them. Really visceral, violent films. And after this film, from what I understand, they didn't do much until The Book of Eli later,、mm-hmm. and they kind of went their separate ways. So I, I was I was eager for you to have some production notes about some something. 
went awry here. I mean, other than the comment from the executive producer, yeah, it's not much. It's not a highly notable film. No, um, it kind of occupied, I think, a bigger place in my personal film history than it did at the larger one. Right. Uh, because I remembered really, really liking this film, and then when I was going to, you know, check the reviews and Wikipedia, it's like it wasn't that well received. No, didn't do that great. Uh, it was kind of a non-starter yeah. because this is still in that period when Hollywood didn't really know what to do with Johnny Depp. He is a leading man and can kind of hold a film, but also he wasn't Jack Sparrow yet. Right. That was still a few years off. So okay. this was before the height of his powers, and he was still kind of that weirdo who can be in a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, kind of an outlier. Yeah. A wild card. So I came across kind of serendipitously a fun book called Rule Britannia, the biopic and British national identity. Uh, and they have a few chapters that I'm going to reference, but one by Jeffrey Richards uh, called Gender and Authority in Queen Victoria Films. And it talks about how the monarchy really used tactics to humanize themselves, especially in the late 20th century, now into the 21st century. Um, you know, before that, it was much more stately. It was, you know, uh, much more reified than it is now. Now it's much more like we have to go shake hands. And now we show up like a fucking mascot at things. I was listening to the podcast You're Wrong About, and they have a whole series on Princess Diana, which is really interesting. Oh, I don't want to be wrong about her. No, it's good. It's oh, okay, good. Okay. It's it's really like it's fascinating. I highly recommend listening to that podcast and especially that series. Um, but I think it was one of the hosts, Sarah Marshall. She says that the British royal family or any royal family is kind of like pandas these days. They're cute, but you're worried for their safety. You don't know if you need them, and you're not sure if they're going to survive much longer, yeah. but they sure are fun to look at. So we preserve them. Yeah. They're endangered. So that's kind of where we are with the British royal family. Um, however, Queen Victoria, it cannot be stated, her importance to the 19th century, to the British Empire, and she was a figure that, while she was leading this empire to some degree, she also leaned into really traditional female roles. Uh, she went from being a virgin to a wife to a mother and then a widow. And as we kind of talked about earlier, royalty was a staple of those cheap penny newspapers. Um, they were fodder for gossip and who's doing what and who's getting married and who had a baby. There were scandals, but there's also a lot of sucking up to them mm. uh, because they were celebrities, essentially. Now, what I found really interesting is that the British Board of Film Censors, which began in 1912 with the rise of film becoming a popular medium, allowed for no depictions of the royal family, including representations of Queen Victoria, who died in 1901. The ban was lifted in 1937. Really? There are no depictions whatsoever, not necessarily flattering or unflattering. Exactly. Okay. Just nothing. They didn't want them talked about because they were worried about how they would be presented and could you humanize them yet? And, you know, there wasn't any of that. And then I think as media moved, the monarchy, which is always, you know, 20 years behind itself, uh, eventually caught up and was like, oh, no, we can be part of this. Helen Mirren can play the queen and talk to a CGI deer. That's maybe Diana. <laughs> you see that movie? No. It's so fucking dumb. <laughs> I mean, Helen Mirren's great in it, but she literally talks to a CGI deer that is meant to represent dead Princess Diana. Ouch. 
Yeah. So that was interesting for me because I think in From Hell, Queen Victoria is kind of presented as a mother to her family. She wants to protect uh, the Prince Albert aspect of it, maybe not for himself, but for the appearance of her family. Yeah, because it's not just a family. It's a brand. Exactly. And in doing so, she is also a mother to the world she stands for, yeah. a world of being proper, of being marrying into the correct family lines mm. and into not Catholic families and into not these things. So she is a mother to a very certain part of society that most of us have never belonged to and will never belong to. Mm-hmm. So, of course, she let a lot of people down. But, you know, that's uh, that's how monarchies fucking worked. In this same book, there is another really interesting chapter called Carving the National Body, uh, which is all about depictions of Jack the Ripper in film. And this is by Dominic Leonard. And this posits that the From Hell production stems from an American revival in conspiracy theories from the media, such as The X-Files, Wag the Dog, Enemy of the State, and more. And also this kind of narrative uh, gained traction in the late 90s, as well as the anti-monarchy sentiment after the death of Princess Diana in 1997. And of course, you know, there were a ton of conspiracies about her death. And ultimately, Leonard believes that this film, as well as Murdered by Decree, champion the bourgeoisie detective rather than those who were the victims. Uh, And it follows a basic patriarchal structure that reifies a status quo rather than examining the true societal ills of the time and Mm. how can we change them. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a bit about Gull. Yes. Who is such an interesting figure. And I actually thought Ian Holm, who plays him in the film, does a pretty good job. I don't know if he can do a bad job at anything. He's very warm and friendly when he needs to be, but then when he gets evil, you feel that menace, which is why I think the black eyes at the end feel so goofy because you already had that sense from him. He didn't need it. He didn't. He can bring the menace without black contact. Right? So... I want to talk a bit about Gull because I feel like without all the legwork that Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell do, Ian Holm brings some of this forward, even though the film doesn't want to deal with this because this part of the graphic novel is so fucking dark. I mean, the whole thing is dark. Mm -hmm. But I think that in the graphic novel, as I mentioned before, Jack the Ripper is a kind of cipher, a figure with which to discuss multiple social anxieties within a contained narrative like we were just talking about. Gull in chapter four, which begins with him taking an order, a direct order from Queen Victoria to go kill these women, then proceeds to monologue at his coach driver, Netley, as they travel around London in the graphic novel. And he says, as part of this, again, lengthy monologue that he has to this coach driver, Measured against the span of goddesses, our male rebellions lately won, our new regime of rationality, unfledged and precarious, Our grand symbolic magic, chaining womankind, this must often be reinforced, carved deeper into history's flesh, enduring, till the earth's demise when this world and its sister shall at last be swallowed by a sun grown red and bloated as a leech. Dang. And I I think the graphic novel goes down really dark paths in many ways, but Gull has a real foundation of misogyny Mm -hmm. that he is acting upon. And this, you know, he hates kind of everyone, I think. But part of this whole monologue is that women had the secret of life and childbirth and all that. And we as men as Freemasons, Mm. which is a men only kind of fraternity, you know, around the part of the world, I guess, still to this day, they're in operation. You can go to the Freemason website and try to register. Shh. 
trying to get us killed. Um, but there's this belief within this, especially within this chapter, that women must be kept down mm-hmm. and the male dominance must be asserted. And I just found it so fascinating because it literally starts with Queen Victoria going, hey, you go do this thing for me. Yeah. Granted, he's happy to do it, but without a woman telling him to, he would not have done it. He's not just following orders. And I feel like Netley is, you know, a character who is uh, portrayed as a bit of a clown, <laughs> lower class. He's not super bright. He's carrying out orders a little bit reluctantly. He has his apprehensions, whereas Gull, Gull is not only convinced of that what he's doing is going to help the queen, who, you know, initially the monarchy, you know, the idea wasn't just that we were born into this family and hence we're in charge. This was a God-given divine rule. And I think people forget that. Oh, yeah. I, I could be like, oh, actually, you know what? Andrea just got a message for God. Oh, uh, shit. I am the monarchy of this podcast. Oh, I, I'm on my knees. I am the panda of this podcast. <laughs> Just came to me right now. Gull thinks he's doing God's work. He believes it. And in that great monologue, the thing that really snagged for me and the thing that I feel like this is the kicker of the book and I feel like this is something they tried to tackle in the movie that didn't quite land was when he says, for better or for worse, the 20th century I have delivered it. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that and being like, wow, you know, that's the kind of thing you can only say in a retrospective where it's just there was this situation, there was this story. And in retrospect, we can say that this was a turning point societally. And I think when they transposed that to the movie, it's really clunky. It's clunky. Because they didn't lay all the groundwork before it. So it's like... Oh, now it's 20th century. I did it. Bye. Oh, he's crazy and he's evil. And that's incumbent on the audience to kind of put that together and piece these things together. And when I was trying to piece these things together, I came across an article from Alex Murray um, that I will link to in the show notes where he talks about how Ripperology is a great example of the dialectic of enlightenment. And this is like fucking sociology 101 base theory, but... I'm going to do my best because I agree with it. And I think it all boils down to that quote. And I do think it's fundamentally what captures me about Jack the Ripper. So the dialectic of enlightenment was coined by German philosophers Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. And it was written in the 1940s. And I know we've talked about the enlightenment before and how it's, it's basically a time between the Renaissance and the scientific revolution where the intellectual elite of the 17th and 18th centuries really patted themselves on the back for breaking free of the arbitrary shackles of the monarchy and the Catholic Church. And the German philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, famously referred to the Enlightenment as man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. (laughs) Oh, thank God there are no more immature men. Right? Superstition is passé. That's for scared children. With courage, we can think for ourselves. Science and reason are the answer. And indeed, you know, like the scientific revolution was no fucking joke. However, then World War II hit and we all saw how reasonable that was. And Horkheimer and Adorno fled Germany to New York where they discussed how the Enlightenment appeared to be going wrong. It wasn't delivering everything they promised. And so they started writing a manifesto that would come to be known as the Dialectic of Enlightenment. 
So to start off, something is a dialectic when there are two things that seem to contradict each other, but they're both true. Like that classic example you've probably heard of in school where two blindfolded people are in a room with an elephant and uh, one of them is touching his trunk and he says, oh, it's a snake. And the other is holding its tail and says, oh, it's a rope. They're both telling the truth insofar as their rationality and their empirical senses can tell them. But that situation demonstrates the limits. Like you're not seeing the big picture. You're just seeing what's in front of you. I literally never heard that. You've never heard that one? No. I feel like I heard that one in like elementary school. Oh my God. I did not. I feel slighted by my Ontario public education. Yeah, you fucking blew it. So that's what a dialectic is. So the problem of enlightenment for Horkheimer and Adorno was that we considered reason to be the polar opposite from myth. But in truth, they're just different ends of that elephant. And even though it, it was a good thing, that the Catholic Church and the monarchy lost some of their stranglehold on Europe, it's dangerous to give yourself over completely to reason because people are going to use reason to dominate each other, just like Hitler did. And so the dialectic of enlightenment is basically the idea that humanity thought it was liberating itself from one tyranny only to enter another, out of the frying pan, into the fire, and then calling it progress. And that's the basis of it. Then they go way deeper into the nature of reason, like philosophical shit. But they did also expand the dialectic of enlightenment to look at the emergence of mass media and how the same technology that disseminated film and literature and music was also used to disseminate Hitler's message. It's a one-way method of communication that reduces us all to sameness and homogeneity And they called that the culture industry, which kind of harkens back to what I was saying about the significance of the penny press to Ripperology. It harkens back to the medium, the message and Marshall McLuhan, which we've talked about. But anyway, the point is that this was a miserable time for most people, but for the elite, it was a very optimistic time. People felt like they were free of arbitrary tyranny, but they were just exchanging one form of domination for another. And the Jack the Ripper cultural phenomenon really drove that home in blood. And we see that in From Hell in a couple of ways. We see that the medical profession is, you know, like we talk about the ivory towers of academia. Here, it's a literal secret society protecting a sovereign conspiracy. We see it in the use of lobotomy and crude, crude science for mental illness and criminality or just being inconvenient, like poor Anne Crook. I thought that was one of the most visually horrific things Mm -hmm. in the film, the use of lobotomy and how fucked up it is. The way the police investigation is a fucking joke. The police don't take themselves seriously. They don't take each other seriously. The police surgeon, you know, had a weak stomach and could barely do his job. They had no confidence in their methods or their leadership as based on reason as it was. Well, I mean, in From Hell, the movie, like, their their tactic is, oh, thank God, Johnny Depp's psychic. That's it. Because there's no way, like, this film would be three hours long, but thank God he's psychic because now he's seeing things that he could never possibly know. Right. But we don't believe in myth and superstition. We are men of reason and science, right? Yes. Did you not get personally infuriated when Johnny Depp's character is, you know, he's so in love with Mary Kelly and he wants to save her and he wants to keep her safe and so he gives her some money and like kisses her real hard against a wall and it's all nice. Don't you fucking tell her to tell her friends not to get any carriages that offer fucking grapes? Like that was an obvious point of evidence and something that he could have disseminated across the entire street and saved so many people. He probably was trying to tell her psychically, Mm. but because she's a woman, 
she didn't pick up on yeah, it. Yeah, kind of um, And also, she was the only one worth saving to them. Barf, barf, and barf squared. Anyway, yeah. The dialectic of enlightenment. This was a time in history where the tectonic plates of progress were grinding against each other in the midst of this rash of murders. And to me, that is what that quote from Gull is trying to say. And that is what the graphic novel drives home, if not the film. Well, yeah. And I think that's fascinating. And I I think I need more time to think about it. But from the offset, I think I agree. And I definitely see where you're coming from with it. I'll come back next class with my essay on it. Thank you. (laughs) But I think we are talking about murdered women, women who faced hardships most of us will never know. But some of us still do. Mm There is a version of this reality for many people out there. And yet these films don't seem to be able or willing to really engage with it. So we're kind of being through the sausage meat factory back into these reifying patriarchal narratives that reinforce things that we already know. And part of this for me, and and I really struggled with this because since Johnny Depp's troubles, shall we say, whatever he's fucking going through over the last decade, I've been really wary to engage with much stuff that he's been in. We almost hesitated to tackle this film. Yeah, and and I remember when I was telling Andrea about this episode, how I want to do it, and I was just looking at all the Ripper films and which ones we should do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like had to look you in the eye say, do you want to do this? Do you mm-hmm. want to do this Johnny Depp film? Because I certainly felt kind of weird watching it. And we'll, we can talk a bit more about it in a second. But um, um, even Hitchcock, we'll talk about him too and his problematic stuff. But it just brought me back to Leonard's point in his chapter about Jack the Ripper in film, in particularly thinking about the way Johnny Depp is utilized within the film Mm -hmm. um, and his own celebrity and his iconography. Within the graphic novel, Aberline is portly. He's, you know, again, a secondary character. But no, you've got to bring him up to the front front of the line as a character in this film. And he is basically kind of mishmashed into a Johnny Depp cipher. He is troubled, handsome, incredibly intelligent, supernaturally spooky, and basically a super duper fucking heartthrob. And like the leading manness of Aberline is so displaced within the rest of this narrative, within the rest of the history of this time, that it feels like this abnormality that is sprung through, yeah, um, where it, celebrity overrides everything else. It almost harkens back to the lodger in that way, that we mm-hmm. need to inject a romance and we need to have the this and the that and the pretty girl falling in exactly. love. Exactly. We're repeating these same issues over and over again. So while we can say, you know, Aberline was not only reimagined to fit a kind of Johnny Depp persona, but with imbuing him with these psychic powers, with this intelligence, with trying to stop Gull at the very end, he is seen as this true hero of the film. And I think in our culture, when we see a celebrity doing that, like he's the hero, even when he played Jack Sparrow, it was like he's the, you know, kind of a naughty boy, but he does the right thing in the end. And when I was thinking about it, I mean, Aberline is a tragic figure and he is tragic because he is ultimately good. Mm -hmm. And the only person who knows how good he is, is Robbie Coltrane, Mm -hmm. who plays his partner, whose name I cannot remember in the film right now. Um, and us, the audience. Mm-hmm. He is this selfless character who has said, 
I love Mary Kelly, question mark, um, but I will not follow her, even though that is what I want to do, because mm-hmm. she needs to be safe and live her life. I'm just going to go quietly overdose. Yeah, he's, he's a murder. And what you were just bringing up, Andrea, about the dialectic of enlightenment, we are, again, conflating this when we talk about problematic men. Mm. Now, Jack the Ripper... Super problematic man, whoever he was. He was murdering and brutalizing women who were marginalized and had hard fucking lives already. He's a monster. He is a true monster of humanity, among many other monsters that we have faced in history. And I find it interesting that we are also talking, as we talked about earlier, two problematic men who were central to the creation of both these films. Mm -hmm. Um, Alfred Hitchcock and, of course, Tippi Hedren, when he made sexual advances on her when they were filming The Birds and Marnie, she rejected them. And he said, I will ruin your career. And she still rejected him, and he ruined her career. Mm -hmm. She still worked after Marnie, but not nearly as much, not on the same trajectory that she was on before that. But now she has a big cat sanctuary, and she gave birth to Melanie Griffith, who gave birth to Dakota Johnson. So She wins. I think she wins. She's a cool fucking lady. I adore her. And, And this was not out of nowhere that these accusations came out against Hitch. Tippi Hedren first talked about these in 1983 to Hitchcock's biographer. She then published them in her 2016 autobiography, and it gained traction truly after the Me Too movement, which began in uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Johnny Depp. He was always seen as this kind of, like, edgy guy who is, you know, beautiful and a little tragic and a little bad. Yeah, and he was, like, running around the Viper room and, you know, there's all this kind of romantic tragedy of him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly with Edward Scissorhands, you know, we as audience members, we watch these people and we connect with these characters. And I think we can't help but a little bit put those emotions we feel for these characters onto the person themselves. Well, sure. Because again, they are these manufactured brands. And I think, you know, celebrities do choose their roles according to whether or not it jives with their brand. Exactly. And, you know, they are protected by teams of people, Mm -hmm. publicists, managers, agents, lawyers. And in the last 10 years, Johnny Depp has had a very acrimonious split from uh, his then wife, Amber Heard. Mm-hmm. Um, they had an incredibly tumultuous relationship. It doesn't sound like either of them was in a great place mm-hmm. during the relationship. Um, and, you know, I, I think there can be, you know, a toxic relationship where both parties are part of it. Yeah. But I also think that the smearing of Amber Heard within this Johnny Depp narrative where he was the bigger star, he had more personal money, maybe, question mark. If you read that Rolling Stone interview from like 2016 or something like that. Well, sad. It suggests that he didn't have more money than her? Yeah, it it sounded like he was running out of money. Okay. And that's why he was like doing a new Pirates movie Mm. and he was taking on all these roles Mm -hmm. and trying to pay stuff off. And it just came out again and again because Depp was trying to prosecute these allegations that he was a wife beater in court. And so in uh, the trial that went on in England against the uh, tabloid paper, to bring it all full circle, The Sun, they had to read out a lot of allegations 
conversations and a lot of testimony and a lot of things that happened. And trigger warning for the next minute or so, maybe just skip ahead if you don't like uh, descriptions of domestic violence. This is fact. Um, Johnny Depp texted Paul Bettany, the actor, let's burn Amber. Let's drown her before we burn her. I will fuck her burnt corpse after to make sure she's dead. What the fuck? And I remember reading it um, like in 2020. And I just remember it just haunts me in a way that is like this man isn't okay. No, there are layers to that ick. And that, that was a text from 2013, I believe, or you know, several years before. And uh, I just kind of kept thinking where I was watching from hell and this man who's like, I'm going to save this sex worker. And, you know, <laughs> I love her. I don't know. I'm also psychic and I'm this hero. And only you, the audience, know how big her. of a hero that yeah. I am mm-hmm. because I am so fucking selfless. Mm-hmm. Because now you have people who just stand Johnny Depp and refuse to acknowledge that he might have some really problematic tendencies yeah. that as we prop him up, as we you know watch his movies again and again, he might not be able to get the help that he needs unless things are like kind of stripped from him mm-hmm. until he starts to lose some things. And before anyone wants to tweet at me, before anyone wants to send us a fucking email about Johnny Depp's innocent or Amber Heard did stuff too, mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't want to fucking hear it. I do not want that in our inbox. I will delete it. If you are such a Johnny Depp stan that you've gotten to this point in the episode, I encourage you to take your rage and go rent his new movie. It's about the Biggie Tupac murders. I heard it was awful. Go spend your money and support him. Do not rage at the tiny independent podcast. I don't want to fucking hear it. So, like Jack the Ripper... The media continues to mythologize men over the women who suffer at their hands. And I hope that we will see something new. We will see a new take on Jack the Ripper because it's still going to be talked about. But like, what if we got some like amazing, I don't know what we'd call it, like slash fic, fan fiction, something? I was just thinking of Charlie Says. We need a Charlie Says but of like, Jack the Ripper. But like, what if like, what if uh, the Canonical Five actually became like a badass vigilante group? And, like, killed Jack the Ripper and then just went, like, around Whitechapel avenging people and, like, fucked up men. I'd watch that. But I'd also watch a film about Jack the Ripper that doesn't elevate the investigation and add a superfluous romance and whitewash and paint pink. All of the nastiness that's inherent in this story. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is, like, there are so many aspects to this story that I feel like we've kind of keep going through. Even though these two films are really different from each other, we're still finding the same entry points to the way we tell stories. And I think that's why we need um, different people at the table, different filmmakers, new voices, new creators. And we need to rethink how we tell stories because we watch two films uh, 80 years apart from each other. And there are enough similarities that I'm like, wish I'd seen something different. Mm. Wish I'd been challenged a little bit more. I mean, I was pretty challenged. You know, I'm I'm drinking it off now. Challenge to get the ick out of my mouth. I'll put it that way. Well, should we jump out of the 19th century and birth ourselves into the 20th? Yes. Let's take a nice hot shower and move along to our our last episode before we take our annual sabbatical, I dare say. Yeah. And I am excited for this episode because it is something that neither Andrea or I have any knowledge in. Yes. We have no knowledge in home ownership. So for next episode, unless our Patreon goes really well, then maybe we'll buy houses. Oh, yeah. 
just for this episode. It's part yeah. of our research. Just write it off. Uh, <laughs> Million dollar property in Toronto. Just given interviews to Rolling Stone in two months loft. being like, we mortgaged ourselves too far. <laughs> um, we are going to be talking about the original Amityville horror and the original Poltergeist. Ooh. It's going to be spooky. There's mm-hmm. going to be possessions. Mm-hmm. There's going to be conversations about who gets to own a house and why. And what will you put up with when you buy said mm-hmm. house? And I look forward to it. So, until the fog consumes us all, office hours are closed.